Technically, um, maybe I should say good day, mate, because today we are talking about Australia. Now, I'm just here to give you a little bit of an introduction, and that is all, and then I'm going to turn it over. But on the last few Beekeeper Chat episodes between Natalie and myself over on Patreon, we have been talking about Australia. Why, you might ask? Honestly, you're only asking why if you've literally been living underneath a rock, because it has been everywhere in the news feeds and everywhere else. Australia has been breached. That is right. They are no longer pure. They are now uh, tainted, (laughs) sullied. Choose your words. Um, Anyhow, Varroa Destructor has found its way into Australia. It has been detected in New South Wales, and everything is now upside down and topsy-turvy, which for those of you down in Australia, you should be used to being upside down because, you know, bottom of the earth and all. But anyhow, the thought was, since how we've already talked about this a few times on Patreon, we really needed to move this over here to the main segment so that the rest of you can actually get a little bit of information here and kind of give a refresher in some regards. So for this month's Natural Beekeeping Corner, Natalie and Les are going to go through and talk about some of the different ways of natural beekeeping that can be utilized to help with mites, to check for mites, and hopefully go through and give all of you down under a little bit of hope, just a glimmer of hope that ultimately one day things will be okay. It will unfortunately become the new normal. So without further ado, here you go. It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hello everyone, this is Natalie B. I'm your host on the Natural Beekeeping Corner of the Hive Jive. And today we're gonna address some of the recent developments in Australia uh, pertaining to the recent incursion of the Varroa Destructor into the colonies of honeybees, of managed European honeybees on the continent of Australia and hopefully provide some hope, uh, some strategies that can be implemented to mitigate um, the incursion if uh, it becomes spread and also uh, advice on how to monitor and report and uh, what to do longer term with your colonies of honeybees once and if, well, when the spread of the destructor happens across Australia. So stick with me, I'm gonna have Les Crowder come in and uh, share his uh, expertise on the pro- uh, on the problem because he was around the first uh, viral mites that um, exploded in the United States at the end of the 80s, the 1980s. And so he's got a lot of experience um, with the arrival of the mites, uh, the initial steps to intervene and uh, what has worked best for him in the long term. And he will provide and share his um, advice on how to do that yourself. So Les, welcome. How are you? you? I'm sorry to have to be here 
I know how it feels when the mites are coming, the mites are, and suddenly they're there and you feel like, oh no, but it's the way it is. And there is hope. There's lots of hope. You have lived through that uh, initial incursion invasion in the United States. And so as such, you have uh, lots of uh, very valuable expertise you can share with us. And for those of you who don't know, Les Crowder and I have been working together at Be Mindful. And um, together we have over 60 years of experience, most of which is obviously Les Crowder. He uh, needs no introduction. He's been keeping bees for about 50 something years, right? Um, and he's got, uh, he's, he's written the book, Top Bar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health, which has been sold worldwide. And um, he's also been a voice for natural beekeeping and keeping bees in horizontal Kenyan top bar hives, for which we have plans on our uh, website. But we can talk about that in another point. That's not what we're here for today. So Les, tell us a little bit how, what happened. Uh, it was the end of the 80s in the United States when Burra Destructor first invaded the United States, right? Or was discovered. Right. So we knew it was coming. And that's one thing that, that we want to, I'd like to point out is that it was coming from Mexico and we thought it was gonna hit the border. We were monitoring beehives along the border. And then when it was discovered, it was actually discovered in Florida. And the problem is that there are ships, there are swarms. You never know, there's illegal ships and legal ships. And so a swarm can come across a bit of ocean anytime. And in a sense, there's a bit of inevitability to it. It's just gonna be eventually, enough mites are gonna get across that they're gonna kind of fly under the radar and then suddenly they're gonna appear. And by the time you try to contain them, it's a bit late already. And what happens is a mite gets off on a flower, then another bee lands on the flower, takes the mite home. It doesn't have to be bee to bee contact. It can be bee to flower to bee. So we knew it was coming, but it was discovered in Florida. And it was discovered in Florida when people were overwintering their bees, getting ready to move them for almond pollination. And once it was discovered, the beekeepers decided we better quickly move our bees before we get the mite and before they quarantine us, because if they quarantine us, well, they might as well just burn the bees because we're out of business. We can't afford not to pollinate the almonds. So they moved their bees and lo and behold, it turned out many of them already had the mites and didn't know it. And they moved their bees all over the United States and spread mites all over the United States. And I lived in a state with very little movement. It was a desert state where people didn't bring bees much to New Mexico. So we held off for a few years I had worked for a commercial beekeeper and I had quit and had become the honeybee inspector for New Mexico Department of Agriculture. And the, um, the commercial beekeeper that I had worked for continued to act a bit bossy to me at times, even though I was no longer in his employment. And um, he came to me at one point, he said, you know, they've discovered mites in Texas and Oklahoma. And I've got bees 
in eastern New Mexico, we need to exterminate any bees that come from Texas or Oklahoma or inspect them at least. And if there's any mites, we need to exterminate them immediately. He was all about extermination, extermination, and hold the line. Do not let the mites in. I said, well, we don't really have that authority. We have to get authority from, I don't have that authority. And MDA would have to pursue that possibly through the legislature. And that made him mad. But um, then all of a sudden mites were discovered in his bees. And when they were discovered in his bees, he suddenly was, okay, we don't need to exterminate, we need to medicate. He was suddenly adamant that he wasn't gonna have his bees sacrificed to try to stop the mite. But that's all we had the really the authority to do was medicate or treat, no, I wouldn't call it medicate, treat with a poison to kill the mite. And the mite spread pretty quickly throughout the state and we couldn't really stop it in any way. And that may be the inevitability. I'd like to speak with some of our Australian beekeepers and find out where they're at at this point. Because I know they're trying to still contain it, last I heard, and I hope that they can. But be warned that there may be another incursion and eventually you're gonna have to deal with the mites. When the mites first came, there was a bee scientist, and nobody claims the, the quote now, but it was quoted a lot and requoted. Breeding bees resistant to varroa mite is like breeding lambs resistant to wolves' teeth. It just can't be done. It was impossible. And there was. Anyway. It was, you know, Dr. Shimanuki was often quoted as saying it, but he didn't. He said he didn't say it, so nobody wants to take credit for it anymore. But it was quoted a lot that basically the vermite was so virulent that it couldn't be stopped. Well, the other and, aspect of that was that it would take, uh, because the mites had evolved for millions of years with their natural hosts, that it would take a lot of time for them to develop some kind of resistance and tolerance as well. Uh, that was not sustainable. We would take hundreds, possibly millions of years, right, for them to develop resistance. Right. But fortunately, one bee scientist didn't, because that kind of set the belief pattern for a lot of the bee research. There was no research done into honeybees resistant to varroa mite. All the research was into what poison can we kill the mite with and not kill the bee. And, that, and that's a marketing thing too, because that's how you sell the, the poison. But fortunately for us, Dr. Tom Rinder of Baton Rouge thought there might be mite resistant bees, Apis mellifera, in southeastern Russia or in southeastern Asia, where the um, Russian honeybees and the Asian honeybees overlapped. It would make sense if they, if they existed, that's where they would exist. And he finally got enough funding to put together a project to go there. And he did indeed find mite resistant bees. We might call them mite tolerant bees, whatever you want to call them. 
bees that could live with the mites. And, see, and what he found was that they were grooming each other. They were biting the mites. They were, a bee with a mite on her would give a shimmy like she itched and her sisters would feel it and turn around and search her body, find the mite, bite it. But it's mandibles. I have some pictures if I can share a screen. Yeah, you could share a screen. And by the way, we're talking about this because obviously this uh, past month in June, we've had um, detection of incursion of aeromites around um, Newcastle and uh, now North South Wales. Uh, now, New South Wales, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of um, triggered the bio. Uh, security uh, intervention to destroy hives around the detection point uh, in a radius of 10 kilometers to be expanded potentially. Uh, I think there's that area and an area much more inland because the initial detection was um, uh, linked to commercial beekeepers and some hives had been moved. So that's why there's a couple of foyers of infestation that they're trying to control. But so Les, uh, you're sharing your screen now and uh, we can talk about uh, the actual um, implications of having varomites uh, in your colonies, right? Right. So the main thing is that beekeepers in South and Central America, the Caribbean, and now in the United States are finding out the bees can live without us. There are a lot of bees that are becoming mite tolerant, mite resistant, and they're coexisting with the mites fairly well. The mites can be fairly devastating, particularly at the beginning of an incursion or an infestation. This is a picture of a mite and there's a bee with a shriveled up wing. That's due to a virus that the mites transmit to the bees. That bee has a very low life expectancy. And uh, will you be talking about the life cycle of the mites at all or yes. uh, the uh, method of contamination as well, right? Right, let me skip ahead. So here, there's a chart here that shows how the mite, the founder's mite is a pregnant female. However, she finds her way in the hive, either her, a bee went and robbed another hive or a mite got off on a flower got up on one of your bees, she and comes into the hive. Mm -hmm. She comes off the bee when she gets near eight-day-old bee larvae. And she goes down in the larvae, in the cell with the, with the larvae. And then that's right before the larvae spins its cocoon and becomes a pupae. So in the fifth and she's in there, she feeds on the the actually the fat bodies in the bee larvae, the bee pupae. She eventually lays a male egg and then some female eggs. And the and it takes time. All this takes time. And that's the thing that hurts the mite the, or helps the mite. The more time they have, the more eggs they lay. Mm -hmm. So and keep that have, in mind, by the way, um, in what we're going to recommend to help mitigate the, the um, population of mites, because that's a very important point that you're bringing up less, is the length of time under capping for the uh, pupae to, to transform before they emerge, right? That gives them um, 
that much more time when that time is extended for the um, mites to have reproductive females emerge, right? Right. And so in this chart, you see one mite going in. What they show in a, in a female worker, four mites coming out, one fairly immature. Or if it goes into a drone, they have more time, and now six mites come out. And it was reprodu reproduction being somewhat exponential at that point, that's a huge difference to have two extra mites, mm -hmm. six mites now going to infest six bees, turns to 36, you know, and the numbers just skyrocket. But um, one thing, the other thing to keep in mind is that that's Apis mellifera. I'm going to skip that for now. Let's go to Apis serrata, the original host, much smaller bee with a faster life cycle. The mite, when it was with Apis serrata, it could only breed in the drones because that's the only bees that had a long enough brood cycle, um, pupil cycle. They were only in the cocoon long enough. They only be only the drones were in the cocoon long enough for the mite to reproduce. So it couldn't reproduce in the workers. Apis serrata is kept commercially. It makes very small, very tame little hives. You can see pictures of a little beehive over there, a frame from a beehive. But when Apis serrata, when Evroa made the jump from Apis serrata to Apis mellifera, it could really reproduce in the drones of Apis mellifera. It had a lot, many extra days. And then they found that it could even reproduce in the workers when there were no drones. But the point being that could, breeding at its full rate, as fast as it could, could barely survive in Apis serrana. It could only survive when there were drones. There weren't drones much of the year. So then it came out and was phoretic. And Apis serrana was good at grooming. They would find them on the adults and crush them with their mandibles, bite them. And so that made it made it difficult for the mite to reproduce at all. But when it got to Apis mellifera, it way over reproduced. And that becomes an issue for Apis mellifera that it, it would eventually kill the bees. It would kill the entire colony. And when the mites first came to New Mexico, they were very virulent. And the bees were very susceptible. And they would often get to be a point where there'd be hundreds, you look in uh, on a comb, you see hundreds of mites, four or five mites on every single bee. That's insane, Les, that's a uh, high infestation. And they uh, negatively impact the colonies, not only by the physical deformities they're causing through their biting, um, and they're the, the, the um, segments of the uh, bees, um, but also in the, in the pupae, uh, eating the fat bodies, but also transferring viruses, right? And in particular, the deformed wing virus. Is that the biggest issue? Right. That's that picture here. We see that bee up in the top right corner mm -hmm. with the mite on her and see her wings are shriveled up. So... And then her abdomen looks pretty small, mm -hmm. it looks stented. 
And that's because the fat bodies have been depleted and she never filled out her body completely. And her lifespan is probably a quarter of what it would be. And she, and she can never forage. You know, the hive with very much of that is a doomed hive. Right, so it's a two prong, uh, it's a double whammy. First, physical deformities and stunting, and then the viruses that can also create some of those issues. Right, like deforming the wings and whatever else the virus does to the bees. So that's, you know, kind of a bummer. And then we went right to Apistan and we used only one miticide, Apistan, Apistan, Apistan. And it was pretty easily predictable that the mites became resistant to Apistan. It got to where you had to use so much fluvalinate that you would really hurt your bees and it began to contaminate the beeswax. And the other problem is that they made a beeswax soluble, but that meant that the beeswax absorbed it and then it got to where it held so much that it would be, the beeswax would hold enough fluvalinate to be toxic to the bees. Well, let's be clear um, that all chemical intervention is basically taking a toll on the productivity of the colonies because there's an impact, there's a cost associated to those treatments, right? Right, they have to be poisonous enough to kill the mites. Mm -hmm. And that means they're gonna to be toxic to the bees. Arthropods and insects are not that different. They, they share a lot of physiological traits and you can magically kill the mites and leave the bees completely unscathed. And unfortunately for us, we mostly just wait till we actually kill the bee and then you say, okay, we did damage, but we don't notice when we did brain damage or little bits of sublethal damage, it's actually very bad for the bees or it reduces their lifespan. We just measure, oh, that's the LD50 when the bee croaked. We, didn't, we don't measure less damage. The all these different effect. things have come out now, different ways of killing the mites that are poisonous to the bees. However, you may be coerced into using them at the beginning of this infestation because you have no choice in some ways. And, well, well that that's, that's often happens. The government passes a rule, either we burn your hives or you submit to so whatever approved treatment that they come up with. Maybe, hopefully it's like oxalic or formic. They're a little bit less, I mean, they're, none of them are good, but they're a little bit less, they don't reside in the colony very long. They're still hard on the bees. It's still not a good a solution, but you may be coerced into using them. There is a better, uh, and then uh, let me just quickly talk about the mite bomb the bee mite bomb. Yeah, what is the mite bomb less and why are we talking about this? Well, the one argument is that if you don't do anything and you try to breed for mite resistance and you're gonna fail, your bees are gonna get infested with mites, then the hive is gonna to start to collapse and other bees are gonna come and rob the bees in the collapsing hive. So this is a picture of, of voracious robbing even the, the hornets or yellow jackets are getting involved in it. And that means the bees are going to, other bees are going to go in and start to rob the honey. 
they're going to get the mites and take them back to their bees. It's just going to explode mites everywhere. And we used to be told the same thing about disease. Felber, if you didn't treat with antibiotic, your bees were surely going to get sick. You had to treat with antibiotic because if they, if they, if you didn't, they were going to get sick. And then the other bees are going to come and rub out your bees. And you're going to transmit the disease to our bees. And you're being irresponsible if you don't use antibiotic. You can't keep bees without antibiotic. However, we now can. We're now supposed to get a prescription if we use antibiotics. Well, we never needed the antibiotics. There is a way to breed antibiotic or, I mean, um, disease-resistant bees. And we can also breed disease-resistant mites. So to be clear, we are in the United States. Um, so that's where we're talking about uh, prescriptions for the antibiotics and all this stuff. And the mite bombs uh, um, is, a, is a scare tactic that's been, uh, it's, a, it's a mythological um, urban legend that's uh, meant to be scaring beekeepers into making sure that everybody's treating their hives in the United States. And when actually, um, treated hives can collapse and spread mites just as much. And there's more of them in the United States than there are uh, colonies that are not treated with any kind of pesticides. So there's something to keep in mind. Uh, that's kind of what we were referring to on that uh, mite bomb, basically being a big myth. Uh, that's not what's happened. But what what do you wanna uh, link to that less with the, um, with the bees and what the bees can do for themselves in defending their colonies from the infestation? Well, Dr. Tom Rinder went to Russia and he looked at the bees that had been exposed to Apis serrana for potentially thousands of years. And he found that the bees were indeed mite resistant. And he went through a huge process to import those bees. It took almost eight years before when he identified the possibility and then they actually released the bees in, out of Baton Rouge Bee Lab. And these were bees, they were groomers. They would find the bees, the, the mite on the bee. A mite would crawl on the bee, the bee would shimmy, and her sisters would search her body, find the mite, and bite it. If you look at the bottom of the hive, you see these mites with missing legs or legs chopped off because they'd been attacked by the grooming bees and bitten and they died. So they were, that was one trait that turned out to be conferring mite resistance to the Apis mellifera. So he brought them into the United States. I bought some, other people bought some. Then Marla Spivak um, got a line of bees that she let uh, develop in her work. And that was what she calls varroa sensitive hygiene. The varroa foundress goes in, bites the larva, the pupae bee. The pupae apparently gives off a alarm scent. Her adult sisters uncap her, throw her and the mite out, and that stops the mite from reproducing. A little bit rough on the bee too, but it takes a sacrifice to save the colony. So, that's another trait that gives bees mite resistant. 
we can breed these traits into you. You can breed these traits into your bees in Australia. And I would simply start by asking your colleges or any bee research organization you have to look into, um, I can't remember her name right now, a bee scientist who has been doing, bringing in semen from all over Europe and artificially inseminating queens in the United States to Susan Kobe. Mm -hmm. Susan Kobe. To, uh, to in, in, increase the genetic diversity of honeybees in the United States. Well, you could be getting semen from Russian bees that are mite resistant or from survivor stock that are, have both grooming and vera sensitive hygiene traits. Get the semen, I'd artificially inseminate some bees. There's no chance of bringing in any more mites or anything because you're just bringing in frozen semen. Hey. Just to be clear, you would need authorization from your government. That's not something you can do on your own, right? Right. You need your government department of agriculture to back this project because it will help you jumpstart the eventual goal of keeping bees in any place in the world is to keep bees without poisoning the bees. And you don't want to continue to de depend on any of the various toxins that they use to kill the mites when you can breed bees that are mite resistant. So, USDA recently said that they, they developed a miraculous mite resistant bee that they're now, and I'm, I'm glad in a way that they believe that because belief is, is an important part of the cure. But what they basically have developed was VSA, very sensitive hygiene which was developed long before they claim credit for it. But you can ask your Department of Agriculture to ask our Department of Agriculture for the poll line, P-O-L-L-I-N-E. And they'll say, yeah, we, got, we developed this mite resistant bee. And maybe they'll give you some semen so that you can jumpstart mite resistance in Australia and not have to wait 30 years for it. Well, does it really take 30 years less? I think that what the big myth is that it's been uh, taking so long in, in, in the United States for the situation to stabilize because we have relied so heavily on treatments and haven't um, utilized the pressure of the predator to let our bees develop um, traits in resistance and tolerance, which can happen a lot faster. I believe that uh, when Danny Weaver uh, in the United States uh, um, implemented the survivor techniques that uh, John Kifus, Dr. John Kifus um, also promotes in the United States and in, in France now, um, that um, the initial crash uh, made a high rate of losses, which is probably going to happen in, in Australia no matter what, especially in the feral population. I think in New Zealand, the, the loss of the feral population in the initial years was up to 90%. Uh, managed uh, colonies, on the other hand, uh, the number of colonies that were managed uh, didn't really decrease uh, total, which speaks to the um, intervention of the commercial beekeepers or the people that were splitting their hives to make up for the losses. But the number of entrepri uh, beekeeping enterprises actually did decrease by 50%. So a lot of the beekeepers that didn't know how to do this had to get out of the 
industry. The ones that left learned how to mitigate the issues, maintain their colony numbers, and uh, the survivors are the ones that are going to develop on their own, excuse me, their uh, resistance and their tolerance for the mites. And I correct me if I'm wrong, Les, but I think it takes about three to four years for um, that process to take place if you don't really intervene. There's going to be losses in the meantime, but the bees will kick, uh, bounce back a lot faster if they're not uh, treated and exposed to pesticides. Is that correct? Yeah. So there was a study done in Italy that I have to look up someday and I'll put on my Facebook page where they found that the Italian honeybee, the feral Italian honeybees, mostly died when the mites came. And then a few years later, they started to reappear in low numbers. And by like four years, they were re almost back to normal. And in eight years, they were roaring as if they didn't have mites to worry about. They had mites, but the Italian honeybee, the feral Italian honeybees, or resisting the mites. Mm -hmm. The Jamaican beekeepers noticed the same thing. They had feral bees and then kept bees and they didn't have access to miticides. So many of the Jamaican beekeepers are, you know, they don't have the internet. They don't have a lot of the, they don't have a lot of money to buy miticides. So their bees died. And then they started noticing some feral bees and putting them back in their hives. And in about four years or five years, they were back in business with no miticides, still seeing mites on occasion, but not in numbers that, that hurt their beekeeping operations. So the, mite, the bees can naturally develop mite resistance all on their own. Mm -hmm. And the reason it took so long in the United States is because we did breed bees dependent on miticides for many years. The use of miticides bred a bee that was dependent on the miticide, a mite susceptible bee. And if, the other thing is we are breeding mites when we breed bees. Mm -hmm. the mites that are very virulent in their reproduction killed their host in nature and then they died. It's a stupid parasite that kills its host. A parasite needs a thriving host. So if you just let nature take its course, the mites breed their reproductive rate down, the bees breed their resistance, and pretty soon the mite and the bee become very tolerant, can coexist fairly well. But when we intervene with miticides, we actually destroy that natural um, balance. And we propagate genetics that are not meant to survive in the face of the pressure of the pests in this case. And um, so that's kind of something to keep in mind. The definition, the difference between tolerance and resistance, basically resistance, there are strategies that the colonies uh, act on to um, fight back and decrease the population of the pests. That's resistance. Imagine the French resistance. And uh, tolerance is being accepting of the population levels, not only of the pests, but of the viruses that they transmit. So you can have high number of mites in some instances, 
which uh, can trigger high levels of viruses, but the strains of bees that are tolerant will actually uh, thrive despite that those high levels. And the key is to really reach for tolerance with a certain amount of resistance that, to help out along the way. And um, that's what we call survivor stock. And the other aspect of that is that basically the genetics, and that's where Sue Kobe's um, program is very interesting, is because she brings in uh, back, she increases back diversity into the gene pool and, um, and combine that with very well-mated queens with, that are mating with local survivor stocks that have not been treated, that have not been propagated from the weaker genetics, you end up with hybrid vigor as opposed to um, genetic in Breeding, I mean, uh, uh, inbreeding depression, right? And a lot of the problems we've seen over the years uh, after the initial impact from the uh, explosion of varomites in the United States has been, yes, when you do, do see some uh, spotty brood pattern, which is often taken as an indication that you have mite issues where um, the, 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 there's spotty uh, brood. Well, very often that's a, uh, Poor, a poorly mated queen or inbred queen uh, that's causing those issues. So what we've been seeing over the years is that a lot of the issues uh, from mites are impacting negatively colonies that are not fit. Um, they're not genetically strong and they're under stress. Whereas if you have a colony that's healthy and genetically fit, they tend to do well in the presence of the pests and the pathogens, right, Les? Right, and yeah, it's, it is survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> some bees are, have a nice balance of natural mite resistance. They groom, they do some sensitive, sensitive hygiene. And the, but one thing you brought up that I think is real important is the numbers. They'll have you do a test to determine the degree of infestation. And unfortunately, they tolerate a very low number before they say you need to intervene, or they may say, I mean, if they, at this point in Australia, if they're finding any, they destroy the colony, mm -hmm. which is just, it's unavoidable, it's, it's unfortunate. I don't know if there's any indemnification because you're putting people, you're causing great, economic turmoil for people. One well, loss of diversity. To stop the infestation. Right, and it's a loss of diversity as well. There's, look, the, uh, an invasive species uh, to become a, a real economic impact, to have a real economic impact needs to go through three phases, usually the introduction, the establishment where it's not really uh, uh, spreading much and then the spread throughout. And that, you know, one of the challenges that you're having in Australia right now is that you don't know where you're standing in there. Uh, it might be at in the introduction level or it might be at the establishment level. We don't know how long the VAR destructor has been in the country before being detected in those sentinel hives. So that's a last best-ditch effort right now to try to stop the spread. Uh, but if it's already established in the populations uh, around Australia or around that area anyway, it's gonna be really hard to, to stop the spread, right, Les? 
Yeah, and I mean, you've done a great job in Australia for a long time at avoiding bringing in agricultural pests and varomite in particular. But it does become somewhat inevitable. They can be brought out on a swarm, on a ship, on a plane even. And, you know, if you do a great job and you get rid of most of them, it only takes one mm -hmm. to sneak off into the forest somewhere and then secretly or quietly spread. And you go back and you find a few. I hope you can contain it. But keep in mind that you should be getting ready for Varroa anyway. Because more than likely, eventually, it's going to find itself widespread throughout Australia. And uh, the best thing would be get bees that you know are mite resistant from, get semen from other countries that have already bred bees with the mites and artificially inseminate a few queens and raise some queens through your Department of Agriculture get the Department of Agriculture, the bee research um, universities, whatever you have there, to do some research and get with our Department of Agriculture and ask them for the, some semen from the Pauline line and see if you can get some Russians, some VSH, and breed resistance into your bees right away. Right, because those um, those genetics that we have in the United States that are resistance intolerant, and there's not just those lines. There's a lot, of, but they're more accessible to for programs like you're discussing. But truly, what we have in the United States is in every local area there are bees that have been allowed to develop their own resistance intolerance for the past, and that are that could be providing those genetics traits that are valuable into the fight of the colony against the pest. So anything that you can do to increase that diversity and bring in those traits um, in, in agreement with your government, we can't emphasize that enough. You don't want to start going to the U.S. and bringing back bees. You really don't want to do that because there's other issues. Uh, you could be importing other pests. You could be uh, and parasites. You could be importing genetic traits that are not wanted, like the Africanized genetic traits. So there's a lot of things that you need to take into consideration. That shouldn't be left to individual populations, uh, individual beekeepers to do this. It should be done through a project through your government. Um, but in your own operation, you can also start uh, really monitoring what uh, you need to learn how to monitor for the pests. You need to understand the life cycle of the mites. You need to be very aware of um, how it reproduces and you need to be able to um, detect it and, and quantify it using some of those sugar rolls. Uh, we'll post some links, by the way, with some um, information that you can use locally that we think are is very pertinent and and sift through the plethora of there's a lot of bad advice out there so we're going to try to the, the curate some really good information for you guys on how to do the sugar rolls uh, we already have some information from the australian government that's really pertinent uh, in all advice that we can provide to you on that but then the other things there's other things we can do less right uh, once we have um, an infestation of mites that's been spreading. What are your recommendations on what we can do at the um, 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 
uh, apiary level once the government is decided that you know some areas uh are, i mean the, the spread is uh unstoppable like they did in new zealand they finally gave up all the interventions because it was spread around the country so much there was no eradication possible um so what are some of your recommendations and also can you discuss a little bit why once the spread is started having feral colonies uh is, is going to mean that you're going to have that spread uh and it's going to be completely self self-fulfilling cycle of uh spreading of the mites right well when we first got the mite here the Department of Agriculture was able to monitor all the hives that were registered, but the mites still spread to the feral colonies, and nobody knows where they are, how many there are, and so there's no extermination program that's going to guarantee you killed all the bees mm -mm. in any given area, and that was bad in the sense that it allowed the mites to spread eventually became good because it allowed the, mite, the bees and the mites to breed together and come to a balance. And the feral bees are honest. They're honestly mite resistant, whereas they have to be. They, they got no choice. Whereas, you know, when you start working with beekeepers that are intervening, we break that honesty and we make them dependent on our interventions. So. Um, the, there's other things we learned, the brood breaks, like letting your bees take time off. Even I caged the queens for 10 days and released them, and that introduced a brood break. But if you let them get swarmy or make divides and break, break the brood cycle, natural comb, if you can go to foundationless or top bar and let them build natural comb that is smaller, Sometimes they'll only raise larvae in the small cells and they have a shorter pupil period that gives them a little bit of an advantage over the mites. There, um, and then just keep reading, searching for that mite resistance. When you see a colony that is getting covered up with mites, you should intervene in some way and you have to take your pick of the poisons. But hopefully, in a relatively few years, you'll start getting mite-resistant bees and mite-tolerant bees, and then you can help them out by not feeding them to, during times of dearth too much so that they don't keep the brood going. Let them break the brood cycle and start it back up again, and that breaks the mites' breeding cycle because the mites can only breed in bee brood. So. There's lots of things we can do. Well, and to your point, um, a lot of um, beekeepers, especially commercial beekeepers, tend to feed, feed, feed because they're preparing their colonies to go to uh, pollination. And the other aspect of that is that transportation and that commingling of the bees on the uh, apple uh, fields or the orchard, uh, the almond orchards or the cherry. You know, you guys have a lot of the same issues. Uh, when it comes to that. And that's where a lot of the bees are drifting and, and contaminating the other colonies and spreading all that uh, across the country. But the um, the um, the brood breaks is basically when you're not feeding the bees, you're letting them follow the natural cycles of weather and forage to, that's local to your area. 
And that means that during dearth times, the colony is going to contract and potentially the queen is going to stop laying or lay a lot less. And then you're going to have a break in the brood cycle, which in turn is going to um, provide a break in the mite reproduction cycle. And, and so that population is going to be controlled uh, more naturally that way. When you do push for constant brood in the brood's nest, you end up with constant reproduction of the mites. You're making that problem, that, that infestation much worse when you keep your bees in, in, in brood, basically. So that's what Les is referring here to, uh, to let them follow their cycles of um, uh, contraction and expansion without forcing them into being broody all the time. The natural cell size, uh, bees will build uh, various ranges of cell sizes from larger for the nectar storage and honey and drones to um, brood, uh, worker brood, to, you know, uh, even smaller on the edges of the comb. And that uh, shortens, you know, when you have smaller uh, cell sizes, as opposed to foundation, which is often 5.4 millimeters forced to the bees, which uh, increases the length of their development cycles, meaning the mites have more time under capping to reproduce and cast more um, mature mated uh, offspring females for just basically making the infestation much worse, much faster. Uh, if they've got that shorter, more natural length of development uh, in the worker brood especially, then you are uh, negatively impacted the reproduction of the mites. So just keep that in mind. We keep our bees on natural comb for, that's one of those reasons. The other aspect of it is it's uh, more natural and, and they build the cells that they need for their needs, right? So less, what else, uh, the survivor uh, aspect of things. You, can you talk about that as well? Well, hopefully you can start breeding or finding, like what happened here was mites killed a lot of the feral bees, but we didn't, somebody say, well, there's this one hive that's survived. Well, let's get that. And that was a project that Marta Spivak helped. She said, if you find one of those, send us the queen and we'll breed it. We'll, we'll let it take over a colony here in we won't, we won't treat it and we'll see what happens. And that's where she found VSH. So it can happen that um, the mites, the, a few of your bees are mite resistant, but you have to find them and then try to not treat your bees and see if you get it like here, this hive is gonna collapse. Okay, go ahead and treat it. This hive looks is looking good. See if you can resist treating it and see if it can be bred and or divided. The dividing itself will reduce the mites because that makes a brood break. And then you, now you've got two. And if you let them open mate, they will find, they will bring in genetic diversity and more natural resistance and, and fitness from the local um, feral population, hopefully, that will uh, at some point bounce back on their own. You want to bring those genes back into your apiaries, right? Right. And so there is a lot of hope. There's a, the honey, Apis mellifera can coexist with varroa destructor very nicely. The African, the South American, Central and Caribbean beekeepers and slowly but surely the American beekeepers have all learned this. 
And now even USDA believes in my resistance. So that's, to me, that's like, oh my gosh, am I going to go mainstream or what? That's, <laughs> I, I, I was kind of moved. And it seems odd to me that they're claiming credit for reading my resistant bees. But all they did was what somebody had done years ago. Marta Spivak had already done that, and the bees have done it themselves. You have, and, and the yeah. weavers have, and all people, there's a lot of people across the United States that don't use any treatments whatsoever, and that haven't for years. Uh, you've been that way for 30 years, just basically a year or two after the mites arrived. Is that right? Yeah, it was about five years of fighting with it and having a lot of trouble. And then finding that I could cage the queen and really stop the mite explosion. Mm -hmm. And then Tom Rinder managed to get the release of the Russian honeybee. Mm -hmm. And that was a, I tried them and they were much better. And that's what you need to do is you need to get some Russian honeybee semen. Mm -hmm. And that will help you jumpstart. And it'll also help people believe in my resistance and start looking for it. If you look, you will find it. Mm -hmm. If you don't look, if you don't believe it's there, then you just treat and treat and treat and you keep you. It's an endless trade meal. It's never going to end if you go that way. It's not going to have a better survival rate uh, in the long run than if uh, you guys end up finding your way through uh, survivorship basically. But the other thing to keep in mind, Les, and I know you have to go, so I'm not going to keep you too long, but the uh, balance of native pollinators versus honeybees, they've been introduced in the 19th century in Australia, just like they have in America. They were not native, and um, they are competing with the native bees for some of the resources. And there's something to be said. I know that's not something beekeepers want to hear, but with the initial crash from the arrival of the Varroa destructor in the uh, managed colonies and the feral colonies even more so, you have a rebalancing of the pollination from the native bees that helps them recover. And they do provide a lot of pollination as well. It's just not in the context of agricultural organized transporting those bees necessarily, but they can definitely uh, provide a lot of pollination. So uh, maybe not as fun for the beekeepers, but it might actually be good for the ecosystem in the end, uh, if there's a better balance between the the honeybees and the native bees, right, Les? Right, and we have, we've put in too many bees in some places. Mm -hmm. That, I know we did that in New Mexico. And now there are much fewer kept colonies in New Mexico, and it's probably better a better balance. But keep in mind that, yes, the Apis mellifera is an introduced species in Australia and the United States, but so are many of the white people and many of the crops that we're asking honeybees to pollinate are European or African or Asian crops. Almonds, apples, apples peaches, pears, a lot of these things were not native to the Americas either. And we need, here we are, and we're not going back to before we, got, we came. We're not going to get rid of these invasive species, any of us. That would include me, by the way. Mm -hmm. So, but but let's try to be balanced about it. And there is a lot of hope. The honeybees will, you will find that you'll keep bees that can live with mites without having to introduce poison into the beehive. Mm -hmm. 
soon, and especially if we jump started and believe in breeding from bee, bees that are indeed mite resistant, mite tolerant. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I want to reiterate a little bit. I, I totally agree with you. The, the the fact that we're putting all our eggs in one basket and counting on honeybees to be doing most of the pollination might be part of the issue here as well. It might behoove us to realize that it could be a, a combined uh, use of native species and honeybees to provide that pollination so that if anything happens to the honeybees, the native bees can take back over and keep pollinating our crops, right? So th there's a diversification of the pollinator community that we need to uh, work on. And Australia hopefully has started uh, before the incursion of the Burrard destructor to study their native bee communities because after seeing the example of New Zealand that didn't have any data before the incursion of Burrard destructor uh, and couldn't make any conclusions, at least Australia has had a heads up on what would happen because it will, it's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when it would happen to study their native bees and, and see how the, they can balance out and compensate for the decrease in honeybee colonies in their pollination uh, strategies, but therefore mitigating the impact, the economic impact on all of us. Right, and, and that brings me, to, I'm gonna have to go, but I'm gonna quickly yes. mention, I remember talking to a pollination biologist for 80,000 acres of almonds in California who said eventually we need to get to where we can raise bees in the orchard and year round and never kill a bee. And that is the problem with all the native honeybees and kept honeybees. If we don't change the poison that we use in agriculture and become less toxic in our agricultural practices, then we, we're kind of doomed. We're, there is no them. It's all just us. We are poisoning ourselves. And it can be done, but that's the problem with the native bees is we have to reduce the toxicity in agriculture. We have to find solutions to pest problems beyond broad spectrum poisons. And as beekeepers, we can lead that way and say, look, we found ways to keep bees without putting poison in our beehives. Now let's find ways to deal with the uh, various pests and parasites of our crops that aren't toxic to the bees. And then we can build a healthy ecosystem for everybody. That's right. Well, thank you, Les, for sharing your wisdom. I know you have to go. I will finish mm -hmm. uh, answering a question from one of our uh, top bar beekeeping in Australia. Uh, um, um, post follower that we were asking for questions for, and then uh, we'll see you later. We'll also post all the links and all that stuff later uh, in the video so that you can have some resources as well. Les, thank you very much. Appreciate you. And thank, thank you, you, as thank always. You. Thank you, everybody, and I'll see you soon. Thank you, Les. With this, uh, Les has left us, but I wanted to um, make sure that the question from Matt, Matt Checksfield on Tabarbi keeping in Australia was answered. He was interested in how more significant of a challenge managing varroa naturally would be in warmer areas like Australia with little or no bird breaks and whether long lengths offer any advantage compared to vertically stacked lengths. So that's a two part question. And uh, what I would say is that in warm, uh, areas, there's still uh, um, 
dearth. I know in Australia and most part of Australia still have a winter where there's a dearth and the colonies contract and stop or, or really greatly decrease the brooding uh, in the colony. All that's going to help out. And again, if you want to make sure that you allow for that to help release the pressure from the pest's reproduction, uh, just make sure that you're not feeding your bees artificially to promote brooding at times where they don't need to be brooding, especially in the winter, which can have other unintended consequences, such as uh, premature swarming at a time when there's no drones, potentially um, chilling the colony as they're trying or starving the colony as they're trying to keep a premature brood warm and the temperatures are not high enough. Uh, and that can also increase problems with small hive beetles if you're uh, feeding pollen. Uh, all that is related to pollen. Sugar syrup will still increase brooding. So you want to limit the amount of uh, feeding that you do to emergency feeding only if possible. I know that for commercial beekeepers that are trying to go to pollination contracts, that's a little bit different, but in the light of what's happening right now, uh, I think there's a standstill order in Australia and a decrease in mobility in all the colonies anyway. So a lot of the beekeepers that were providing pollination services um, that were in that uh, New South um, Wales area won't be able to do that. So there's going to be that aspect of things. Um, so the, um, the other aspect of this is that you want to uh, leverage the natural reproduction instinct of the superorganism to stop from preventing them uh, from swarming. You don't want to stop swarming. You can leverage it, however, to make splits. Uh, harvest those uh, swarm, natural swarms before they leave your colony by making a split with um, the old queen. The way we do this, uh, Les and I, is we usually will find the old queen and uh, at the time when we can see they're getting ready to swarm. So you have to educate yourself and be familiar with what the signs are of uh, swarming, basically uh, appearance of drones, uh, lots of capped brood. And once that brood um, <clears throat> emerges, a huge increase in population and uh, potentially backfilling of the brood's nest, congestion, all those are signs, precursor signs to swarming. And if you recognize that and or you can find uh, swarm cells at that point, it's a little bit too late, but if you catch them uh, early enough, you can still catch the old queen. And what we recommend is taking the old queen out with um, two or three combs of brood and food and a few extra shakes of bees, leaving the donor colony with eggs uh, so that they can make uh, new queens and or swarm cells so that they can finish raising those new queens. And all that has the effect of uh, allowing the colony to go through the swarming uh, process, which is a cleansing process that allows them to decrease the population of varro mites um, through the brood breaks uh, because they're not allowing the mites to reproduce at that point. So learn how to do that and uh, find confidence on how to do that. And if you are uh, finding your colonies infested with um, uh, varro mites, that will definitely help um, decrease that pressure on your colonies a little bit more naturally. Uh, and it's actually quite efficient. Again, the uh, natural comb will help, but uh, in this case, in uh, warmer areas, those um, brood breaks can still happen um, based on the dearth 
in Texas, we have two main dearths. We have one in the winter, which is a cold time where the bees don't even get out. And then there's the summer when it's 104 Fahrenheit, which is, I think, 37 uh, Celsius. And the bees also tend to contract and reduce the amount of brood in the colony and uh, stay inside because it's too hot and they're not finding any food. Uh, and all that is helping us uh, have healthy bees that are not, um, uh, that are, don't have high populations of mites. Now, this being said, that's um, uh, resistance. That's part of the resistance. That's decreasing the pressure of the pathogen, uh, the pest. That's decreasing the population of the pest. Uh, and, and that genetic diversity that comes in is that tolerance that you can also uh, just select for the colonies that are the strongest and that are able to survive on their own. And if you have colonies that don't seem like they're doing well uh, and they're really struggling in the face of uh, the mice, then destroy them. But keep the ones that are able to survive, especially if they can survive from uh, one year to the other, going through a full cycle uh, and going through the dirt. Um, those are the ones that you want to keep. Research uh, Dr. John Kifis and the soft bond method, as in uh, James Bond, because it's a survivor of the fittest. And uh, look up his work. That's something that you really want to take a look uh, at as well. Um, Matt's other part of the question is whether long lengths offer any advantage compared to vertically stacked lengths. So I would say horizontal beekeeping will definitely, in our experience, and we manage over 300 colonies, uh, a lot of our colonies are tubber hives, but we also have Langstroth hives, vertical ones, and we have uh, long lengths as well. And the horizontal management is definitely a lot more, uh, a lot less stressful on the colonies, especially Langstroth will have chimney effects and, and it's very stressful on the uh, colonies themselves. When you open and crack a, um, a lid open, you are exposing the entire bird's nest to air and, and um, light and the volatile compounds, the propolis volatile compounds are escaping the colony. So you're really disrupting their bird's nest and, and it's very stressful to the colonies. It's uh, more difficult for them in a vertical configuration uh, to, and, and by the way, a lot of those hives are on uh, just thin, wood so they're not very well insulated and so compound that with that chimney effect and you have a lot of stress on that colony um, but if you are keeping vertically stacked lengths i would say decrease the height of your stack so that they are better able to maintain their um, temperatures uh, throughout the winter uh, the long lengths obviously being a horizontal will offer some advantage on the vertically stacked lengths. But what will definitely offer the most um, advantage, in our opinion, is the horizontal top hives with the natural comb pertaining to what we were discussing earlier, as well as the lack of frame, which uh, also uh, tends to help with the um, communication, the vibrations of the comb. But mostly, we believe that the, the, um, the structure of the horizontal uh, Kenyan Taba Hive has a tendency to allow the colonies to keep their bruise nest closer to, and, and tighter um, and right under the bars, especially if you've got them on thicker lumber. Uh, in the U.S., we use less than nine two-inch lumber, and we have plans, by the way, at b-mindful.com slash plans that you can use 
um, and, and just implement in Australia anytime you'd like. We make those about four feet long. And um, we find that our bees are doing invariably better in the horizontal top of our hives than they do in the uh, Langstroth hive, the vertically stacked ones. The long lengths are kind of in, in the middle of uh, horizontal tabba hives and the vertical uh, Langstroth hives as far as how well they do and how stressed they are and how much calmer they are, right? In the horizontal tabba hive, they're also a lot calmer, which helps with their health. Uh, so keep all those, um, um, pieces of advice in mind when you're trying to mitigate the effects of the pest. A good insulation and a horizontal configuration will definitely help as well. So a, a long lang, a, a coffin hive, like some people call it, is definitely a step in the right direction. But even better than that is the horizontal uh, taba hive, uh, the Kenyan horizontal taba hive. So um, if you have any more questions, we've got a lot of information that we can share with you. And you may join us every Monday, uh, U.S. time, 7.30 p.m. U.S. Central time. Uh, so I don't know what the difference is for Australia, and we'll post that in the comments in the video. Um, but we do for an hour every week. We talk less crowder and we answer your questions. So we invite you to join us every uh, Monday for that uh, chat with the mindful beekeepers. So you can ask your most pressing questions and see how we can help you um, mitigate the issues that you may uh, very well end up having pretty soon. Uh, we hope that the recent incursion will be stopped and we encourage you to follow all the instructions for your government uh, on how to report your hives, monitor your hives, and uh, just make sure that you follow their requirements on destruction if they're asking you to do that. We're not here to interfere with the Australian government. In the end, this is the law of the land, but we are here to offer you hope that you can, once the infestation, the incursion is spread around the country, that you can mitigate uh, and, and speed up the tolerance and resistance processes of your colonies and having them fit faster uh, without using chemical intervention in any kind. Um, so with that being said, less has left me and I want to wish you courage and hopefully uh, this will uh, be only a temporary uh, issue that will hopefully uh, be mitigated a lot faster than we were able to do in the United States based on what we've been able to, to research and prove um, with the years of expertise, unfortunate expertise that we have for this issue. It is not the end of the world. Once it's established, there's ways. It will be a little rocky at first, but it will stabilize and balance itself in the end. So keep that in mind. And uh, we will be there to help you out along the way. So with that being said, uh, you guys uh, have um, a good rest of your week and let us know if you have questions, b-mindful.com and we'll take you uh, there as we can. Thank you. Have a good one. You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.